show's so good, we won't blame you if you can't pick a favorite. Can't pick a favorite. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. It's quarter past eight. You're still on the talk shop on SAFM. I'm joined now on the line by Dr. Martin Davies, who's Managing Director of Africa and Emerging Markets at Deloitte. Uh, Deloitte Africa, in fact. Dr. Davies, thanks for joining us. Yes, Nate, thank you very much. Good to be here. Great. So you, you held the Africa Risk Conference today. What, what is the intention behind this conference exactly? Yeah, thanks. Well, we hosted our annual Africa Risk Conference, the ARC, we call it, at Johannesburg Stock Exchange, obviously hosted and organized by, by Deloitte. We bring together some really, you know, senior uh, business people, good thinkers, independent thinkers, um, together to talk about really risk about you know, how we're viewing risk in this, uh, this dynamic and fluid marketplace that we call Africa. Mm. Of course, it's been lies across a very complex, heterogeneous continent. But the continent, I would argue, the economies of this continent have, have changed dramatically in the last two, two and a half years, partly because of commodity prices, partly because of governance changes, etc. Mm. And what does this ultimately mean for business? What does it mean for South African business? What does it mean for multinational investors uh, in the African region? Yeah. Who were some of the speakers? Let's go down the list of, of speakers. We had a we had a, a mixed bag. We had the the senior representative from, from the International Monetary Fund there. We had the, the head of uh, Moody's, the, the rating agency. Uh, we had the chairman of Massmark, Kasemi Glamini. We had a number of South African corporates there and a few multinationals. So it was it was very well represented. More obviously business heavy than than government. This is more of a business conversation really. And saying well, how do we sort of better understand? And as I was saying, how do we understand risk? How do we sort of prepare for it and ultimately mitigate against it for business success? Well, as you can imagine, everyone that's heard that list of um, speakers and attendees, we're all wondering what came out of um, the representative from Moody's especially. So it was Sylvia Chahongo uh, who yes. spoke today, the country manager of Moody's Investors Service. What is it that she, that she really touched on? And, you know, obviously we'll, we'll then, you know, go further into those points. But some of the key points that she, that she made. We're all concerned about what December means for us. I think concerns are understatement. We are hypersensitive mm. toward, toward mm. any sort of con comment or sentiment coming out of a rating agency. In the next uh, couple of weeks, thereabouts, mm. that uh, we'll be looking at, at once again evaluating or reevaluating uh, the sovereign risk rating of South Africa. Uh, and I think my sense of the conversation and what she said today, it's literally on a knife edge. It could go 50-50. And in a month's time, exactly a month's time tomorrow, December 2nd, uh, S&P will also be reviewing the sovereign rating of South Africa. And, and this, you know, we did a quick poll of the audience. We had quite a sizable crowd there. And a quick poll, who thinks we're going to be downgraded to junk status? And who thinks we're going to, we're going to sort of avoid that, dodge that bullet perhaps? And oh, it was 60-40, 60 positive, yes, we're going to be okay, and 40, we're going to be downgraded. So there really is no consensus. And I think in the South African context, and this feeds into the, uh, or reflects at least a really poor business conference we have in this country, is the you know this almost risk on risk off sort of a sort of attitude and mentality we have every day uh, living in South Africa. I'm afraid is a bit low of a South African political economy. Mm. It's a bit like the roller coaster ride, and uh, we're not exactly sure where we are. But in conversation, of course, we, we intentionally don't make it just South Africa centric. We talk too much about ourselves already, arguably. But we talk rather about the entire continent and look at the, the various sort of, uh, you know, various dynamics in different regions of, in different countries, particularly of, of Africa. Mm. Yeah, 60 40. <laughs> 60 leaning towards optimism isn't, it's not the greatest of numbers. And I think South Africans, we, 
we're generally are an optimistic nation at times, or maybe that's just our hopes that you <laughs> might have seen being expressed in there. So maybe just go into a little bit more detail about what she spoke about. I mean, one of the, the reports that have come out of this conference is, she's quoted as saying South Africa is doing relatively well in a lot of indices when you strip out growth. Ooh, that doesn't sound, that sounds polite, but certainly not optimistic. As, as, you know, catching at straws, I think, Lydia. It's, um, you know, if, if your economy is more slow, no growth sort of phase, and that's mm. the one sort of recent, very true. We're in almost a de facto recession because when your population growth outstrips your, your GDP growth, effectively, on a per capita basis, you're becoming poorer, aren't you? Mm. So that's obviously a good thing. And, and, and the question is, we, all of us in our room, I think, that the general sentiment, as you say, this almost is baked in optimism, is that um, if I ask you the question, and ask listeners perhaps a, perhaps a question, what should South Africa be growing at? What should our growth rate actually be? What do you think we deserve or what's the correct rate of growth? And, and the people will, will, no one's going to say 1% or less than 1% acceptable. It's clearly not. People would say 3, some would say 5, some would say 6 plus. So, but if someone says 5%, arguably, and the last time we got that was 2007, mm. uh, when the global economy was really, uh, really cooking and it was, it was a very positive sort of sentiment, you know, macro. But if, if we, if we agree that growth should be greater, i.e. 5%, no one can tell me what exactly we have to do to get there. Mm. There's no real clear view, uh, at least from what we hear in the room or the even policymakers, they're stating that, okay, our target is 5 and this is how we're going to get it, A, B, C, D. So I think we're in a somewhat uh, confused state, I'm, I'm afraid. And that and that does not inspire confidence in capital domestically. It doesn't really inspire confidence in capital to, to invest in, in our immediate region, particularly why should foreigners invest in the economy when domestic players aren't themselves. Mm. And that's not just a plan for Africa, but it's SADAC as a whole, arguably. Yeah, you, you, you say you talk about who would, and maybe we should open up the lines on this one, right? What what is the growth rate that you'd like to see us growing by? And I, oh man, it really doesn't matter what you hear because even if you do hear a three percent, you could say that sounds optimistic. But again, that's that's rare, even on the continent, especially according to you know some of the points you made. And what's this article you you published yesterday, Martin? A new narrative for Africa where you say only Kenya is backing the regional trend and growing at a decent emerging market rate of over 5%. And it's, in fact, the region, Eastern Africa, that's, that's seeing some growth, while the rest of us aren't, aren't doing all that great. Yeah, I think, you know, the shift, the sense of gravity of growth has shifted dramatically in the last two years. I think collapse of oil price circa July 2014, and that predominantly has impacted oil-propelled economies, what I call typically hand-to-mouth economies. Uh, think Nigeria, think Angola, Gabon, Equatorial Guinea, Congo Brazzaville, all Western Coast African economies, largely Ghana to an extent. Uh, what we're seeing, and those economies are, are having, with a few exceptions in the region, think Ivory Coast and perhaps a couple of others, are really, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a sort of a control delete sort of phase where growth is trying to be reset, but either either are recessionary economies there. Um, you know, in reverse gear and face massive challenges because of this massive over, over-dependence on a single commodity, i.e. oil. 
Um, however, however, looking at the eastern part of the continent, and this is the East Africa region, as you say, Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Tanzania, Ethiopia until recently, but that growth will come up quite soon. We've seen very robust growth, and five, six percent is, is typically the normal, even even sort of maybe more than that. Mm. So the, these are is no, they're not all exporting economies; they're all importing economies. So that's a tailwind to growth, i.e. Lesser cost of oil imports, about 25% of the import bill in Kenya, as you mentioned, is, is oil. Um, and these are beyond agriculture. These are resource-poor countries. And arguably, I would say, the most successful developing countries in the last generation or two, uh, think Asia, all of whom are, generally speaking, resource-poor countries. Mm. So it's a fallacy to believe that if you have oil or if you have something in the ground, you're going to be wealthy and successful. Uh, the evidence is entirely the opposite. The more resources you have, typically, the poorer your general society is, except perhaps for a, for a, a political elite, and that's certainly not the model we should be pursuing. Um, you know, think Angola, think many others. Mm. I'm going to open up the lines here. We're talking about what has come out of the Africa Risk Conference put together by Deloitte Africa. The number to call is 891 Various speakers, you had uh, Sylvia Chahongo from Moody's, you had um, Chris Maroling from MTN, there was um, Montfort Mlachila from the IMF, and you know, let's, let's talk about what, what the work needs, where the work needs to be done on the continent here. And what is it that, you, that you, you're hoping to, to have come out of some of the, these speakers? Everyone's hoping that there was valid discussion on um, intra-African trade because that's that's obviously where the work is, and yet the opportunities still aren't there for us to grow intra-African trade. In fact, just just before we went on air, um, was it Kuseni Jamini? He was on SABC News on Channel 404. Was was talking about intra-African trade being a real opportunity. But is it, is it just the African inst- organizations or structures that are talking about intra-African trade in a conference like this one? You know, well, the intra opportunity, of course, there is a region that trades less with itself than us. It's called the Middle East. Um, so, you know, we're very bad, but we're not the worst. And what you take from both these examples is that which comes first, chicken egg. Do you try and drive inter-regional trade by reducing sort of tariff and non-tariff barriers, of which there are significant uh, many in our own region, or do you diversify economy? As economies diversify, i.e. value chains get deeper, um, economies become more complex, naturally you will boost intra-regional trade because mm. it actually is into trade. You see production lines, value chains cross national boundaries. We've seen that in you know Western Europe in the last 50 years. We've seen that in Asia the last 25, 30 years. And you see, you've seen that in the last 20 years, arguably, in North America, particularly between Mexico, Canada, U.S., and NAFTA. So, you know, which comes first? Can you really expect a higher level of interregional trade in a very non-diversified uh, economic sort of structure? And I would argue you probably can't. So it's not so much a policy issue as it is a developmental issue. Um, and I think maybe we rightfully focus on policy, but ultimately a lot more is required to enable policy to work, and that's very complex and difficult to do. Diversification is not, you know, as is often made out to be. People say, well, governments think Saudi Arabia, think um, think Angola, think Nigeria, think even South Africa to an extent, the rhetoric around we need to diversify. Mm. Well, it doesn't come from decree. It doesn't come from laws. It comes from entrepreneurship. It comes from diversification.
allocation of corporate interest. It comes from market forces. It doesn't come from the top. It comes from the bottom up. The question is for government. How does government create this enabling environment? And ultimately, I would argue, capital, tech, innovation, entrepreneurship for the people. If you not have domestic talent or attracting the talent from abroad, you ain't going to diversify anything. And if, if no one... If South Africa has not learned that lesson, particularly Johannesburg in the last 125 years, we started off with one economy, one, one commodity in this town called Johannesburg. Mm. We're now the engine room of the entire continent. That wasn't done by decree. It wasn't done by, I would argue, government policy. It was done by this development of this incredible thing called uh, the marketplace. Mm. And that's really quite a unique story in, in our case, in our, in our own region. Yeah, are we, are we not to some extent... Um Ignoring the elephant in the room here, and that being governance and, and, and some of the the work that needs to be done, especially here in South Africa. And you, in, in this article, a new narrative for Africa, and I'm going to quote from it as well. Um, oh, gosh, now I can't find the last page of your article. But but you talk a lot about, um, you know, governance being a real issue in African in African countries. And now if we, if we don't overlook that, in fact, you said... At the conference today, we, we might avoid a downgrade by the skin of our teeth. Yeah, I think it's very much true, and, and I think I don't think a country is any different from a uh, an organisation like a company, for example. Mm. Would you, lady, you know, maybe a stupid question, but would you or anyone invest their hard-earned money into a company that was poorly governed? Of course I not. don't think you would, mm. and I think the same applies from a long-term perspective in countries. Ultimately, capital will will um, will reward this governance and mm. from an economic perspective and ultimately a political one as well. And that really is the, the developmental lesson, the trajectory, if you will, of, of every successful country I know and we've been to um, you know, in my lifetime. And you'll see it. The countries that are best governed and look after the interests of capital and reward capital um, and protect capital, they will be they will attract that, that, that you know, that, that, as I mentioned, that They'll attract the talent, they'll attract the tech, the innovation, the entrepreneurship, etc. Mm. And there's countless examples of this. Many of our last generation reside in Asia. Mm. In our case, the ultimate, ultimate success of a country is dependent on the character and caliber of its leadership. And that applies to whether you're a company or whether you're a country. Yeah, I just want to throw a bit of a spanner in the works here. And, and, and just, to, just bear with me, okay? Um, there's an article that was written by Kosana Matobela Bingweni. And if you'd like, I'll send it to you, but it's on southernafrican.news. But he says something quite interesting. I need to read it out for you, and then I'll take a break so you can maybe just process it and you know respond afterwards. But it reads, In the present era of globalist internationalism and highly technologized imperialism, new myths are being invented and circulated to cover up the present political domination and economic exploitation of the continent and the people of Africa. Chief among the myths that are uh, presently used to cover up the political domination and economic milking of Africa is the Africa Rising slogan. So Africa Rising is also an inverted commas. This Africa Rising slogan that scholars and journalists of empire are circulating as new political and intellectual wisdom. After the Africa Rising mythology, there is the concocted language of what is increasingly called state capture. In South Africa, when non-European and non-American um, people in Africa canvass for business 
and try to mobilize each other to influence government, um, economic and political policies, which is normal anywhere in the world. This is turned around and called corruption and state capture. Uh, but I'm still on the line with Dr. Davis. So, yeah, I wanted to give you a moment just to think about that. Mkosana Matovela Pingweni. And there's, there's also, you know, whether you call it conspiracy or not, when we think IMF and Moody's in the same room, you've got, you know, writers like Mkosana that are probably up in arms. Oh, no, no, no. What do you think of that, that line of thinking? Well, Nelly, I'm afraid there's some very long and complex <laughs> words there that I don't quite understand. Mm. But I do take exception to the, you know, this tired ideological rhetoric uh, that, that we hear that somehow there's always a, a conspiracy and somehow people are against us and that's why somehow we don't succeed. I don't think that, you know, again, the most successful countries in the world from a developmental perspective, i.e. measured by middle-class societies, well-off, uh, highly educated, long lifespans, uh, you know, fully employed, well, social welfare effective systems. These are countries that embraced free trade, liberalized trade, have embraced open capital markets, have embraced global talent flows. And these are countries that have always said, well, capital, please come and exploit us. Uh, do what you can and, and, you know, we will, we will plug in effectively globalization, we'll increase, you know, and, and benefit, ultimately benefit our societies. Mm. To think that to have this sort of, Almost 1955 conference, Bandung conference, non-line type ideological sentiment. I'm afraid this is this is nothing more than an academic exercise. It has no holds no water in the real world, and that's the world I'm afraid that I live in. But um, really, it's uh, it's it, we you know, and also to relate this to somehow state capture. And I think when when we see in this country that the state capture is a euphemism for for corruption, effectively, I think it's a, even a misnomer of the term. I would agree with that. Um, but, but ultimately saying that when, when, when all stakeholders in this country, from the courts to the public protector to business to organized business to political commentators to opposition groups and, and even you know, Nelson Mandela Foundation, um, come out and against this, this notion or concept of corruption and state caption, and mm. something that we can't keep on sort of blaming some sort of third force conspiracy and blaming foreigners and imperialists or whatever they are. I'm afraid that's, that's, that's just not right. Okay. Well, let's hear from Yaj. Yaj is in Cape Town. Yaj, good evening. Uh, good evening. Hmm. I want to disagree with your Dr. David there about you know, development of economies and so on. A lot of the uh, industrially developed countries developed the economies behind a wall of protectionism. It's only when they were you know, uh, highly developed that they decided to open up trade with other countries, and uh, basically they subsidized the industry, they subsidized the agriculture in the countries, and then expected the you know, newly independent countries in Africa to export all the natural resources for, for next to nothing, de-industrialized. I mean, you know, <clears throat> South Africa had a, you know, quite a developed industrial base prior to the opening up of this economy. After '94, we know the leather industry, the clothing industry was decimated when we opened up to cheap products from other parts of the world. And quite frankly, you know, given this uh, junk status that we are facing by Moody's, you know, it's almost inevitable. And you know, these rating agencies are asking for virtually the impossible. They want fiscal consolidation and austerity and growth at the same time. That's absolute nonsense. It's an oxymoron. It's contradictory. It's not going to produce growth. And I can tell you something. The private sector is sitting on 
500 billion rand of capital which they're not investing because they have a lack of confidence. So government has to step in to invest in infrastructure development. And what infrastructure they develop is very important. Okay. We're facing climate change, resource depletion, all kinds of things. We have to invest as a public sector through the use of public banks, invest in a, <clears throat> basically in a, in a renewable energy infrastructure, public transport, basic housing for people, uh, education, health care, all of that. <clears throat> and we've got to invest in our people, yeah, basic income, and we need new thinking around how money is created. Hmm. We need the Reserve Bank to create money for investment in infrastructure and essential services. That's the way we're going to turn this country around and address all the challenges we face, the legacy of apartheid and all of that. We can't uh, rely on export-led growth. There's no demand in the world for, for our products. There's no even demand for, for commodities today. You can see our commodities have crashed. Mm. The price of oil has crashed. China slowing down. You know, Europe is in a, morib- a moribund state. And so the USA, the world is in trouble. You know, global growth, economic growth cannot take place infinitely on a finite planet with finite resources. Mm. And this is what we have to address. We need the leadership, the academia in this country, and intellectuals to apply their minds and for people to be discussing these issues. We need to change the way we do taxation in this country. We need to stop income tax and VAT and look at a land tax, a levy on financial transactions, and ultimately we're going to have to accept a carbon tax. Mm. All right, Yash, thanks for calling. It's quite a mouthful that you've said. Um, and I'm, I'm running out of time, so we need to move, move towards wrapping this up. I can't get, I don't think I can ask you for recommendations that came out of all of our speakers, Dr. Davies, but let, let's, let's hear some of yours. And what everyone is concerned about is avoiding that downgrade. Yash says it's almost inevitable. How do we? How do we get there? Well, it was said today, and I appreciate the views, um, but it was said today at our conference that, you know, our, our extremely short term, I'm thinking here a few weeks at best, hmm. uh, sort of strategy, and has been in last year, year and a half perhaps in this country, has been to avoid a downgrade. Well, the real, that's not the issue. The real issue is how do we fundamentally change, reposition our economy to enhance competitiveness and productivity? That's the real issue. Uh, this, the, 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 the downgrade is just a very, very short-term thing. It's mere, it, it, it's a consequence of where we are. It's a symptom, it's not the cause. The causes, you know, are significantly more, but I, I would strongly differ to, I mean, I hear some of the sort of very innovative solutions, and maybe some are quite clever coming from, from the previous, uh, previous caller there, but, but ultimately, I think any, any person would admit that the biggest challenge we have in our economy is state and enterprises. You name me one state enterprise, and I'll tell you a failure. So, if, if from, a, from a fiscal drag perspective, and ultimately taxpayers pay for this, the failures of power utility, the failures and crowding out of capital opportunity of the likes of infrastructure players, and we talk about monopolies, the only monopoly that I really know in this country are owned by state and enterprises. And be it from an SAA to an ESCOM to a transnet to a post office, you name it, every week, there's a different crisis almost every single day among state enterprises. Point being, you can't argue that the solution is greater state intervention when the problem itself 
is the state. But you, 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 you say in your article, you, you say in your article a new narrative for Africa, which, which you're not mentioning about state-owned enterprises, isn't that in fact in the article you've talked about a need for us to privatize state-owned firms? Very much so. I mean, if you look at, I was in Zambia a few weeks ago, and I was horrified to hear that Desco, like the ESCOM equivalent of high utility, the gentleman voluntarily, quite surprisingly, told me, he said, you know, how many, do you know, Martin, how many, how, how many megawatts of power we have added to our grid the last 30 years? And I said, I have no clue. He told me 100 megawatts in 30 years. Mm. That's the consequence of state ownership. Not only does it crowd out and prevent private capital from investing and building capacity, but at the same time, it just, it, it's a monopolistic practice. There's no incentive to do anything. So it does nothing, but at the same time prevent private capital from doing something, you know, in competition to it. That's just natural behavior. So it's protecting state-owned enterprises effectively just protect highly politicized vested interests. And I'm, I see that across an array of countries across our continent. And I think there hasn't been this ideological shift in our continent, as there has even been in places like China, a country I know very, very well, where this notion of marketization or even sort of privatization by stealth, if you will, is certainly a given and accepted. And I think this notion of the state must drive, the state must do this, the state must run, the state must involve. Look at the problem in this country. The state-owned enterprises are the primary problem, not private capital. It's the state. Let's not have more state intervention. Let's have significantly less. But how much influence? How much influence does government um, business have in terms of you know making some kind of push towards uh, better governance? And this isn't just in state-owned enterprises. We can talk all the way up to leadership in in the country because what we hear now is points around no, you know, privatized state-owned firms, but there aren't points that that are made about or, or recommendations on how you improve governance in some of these in some of these organisations. Well, you need private, you need, you need uh, accountability ultimately. And, and, you know, that, that's every country needs ultimately accountability, no matter what sector you're in. But can someone please tell me the reason why SAA should not be privatized? Uh, I, I'm, I'm confused. If the state must drive growth, why should SAA not be privatized? Can someone answer that question for me? Okay, let, let me let you go, Dr. Davis. It's been fun chatting to you. Um, and, and I hope that you'll, you'll keep us updated on what else you're getting up to if there is a similar and a program that you that, that you are working on, similar to the conference Great, anyway. Man. Thank you very much. Always enjoy the chat. Listen, will any of the any of the uh, discussions that were that were had at this conference be published for us to look at in any way? Yes, we'll be putting a summary together and quite a lot of them in the press already today. Uh, good quotes, uh, some good sort of talk to each about some of the people there, some good views. But we'll be putting the Lord will be putting together uh, some reports of, of key findings and. Uh, key ideas perhaps, and that ultimately is about bringing people together, you know, people who can share ideas and, and create new knowledge and new thinking. That's ultimately our intention. But all in all, a 60% optimistic <laughs> sense that's come <laughs> out of that conference. Yeah, Dr. Davis, thanks for the chat. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you so much. Take care. Great stuff. Dr. Martin Davis, Managing Director of Africa and Emerging Markets at Deloitte Africa. You're still on the talk shop on SFM.